Hello, everybody. On behalf of the Southeast ADA Center, the Burton Blatt Institute at Syracuse University, and the ADA National Network, welcome to 504 at 50. I'm Mary Mortar, responsible for materials development at the Southeast ADA Center. The 504 at 50 is a special interview series created in recognition of the 50th anniversary of Section 504 of the Rehabilitation Act. In this series, Dr. Peter Blank, PhD, JD, speaks with leaders of the disability rights movement who advance the cause of equal rights through their tireless work. Today, we welcome our guest, Sandy Ho. Sandy is a disabled community organizer and director of the Disability Inclusion Fund at Borealis Philanthropy. In 2015, she was recognized as the White House Champion of Change for her work on mentorship for young women with disabilities in Massachusetts. She identifies as a disabled queer Asian American woman. Welcome to the program, Sandy. Thank you so much and happy to be here. Great, thank you. Our host today is university professor and chairman of the Burton Blatt Institute, Dr. Peter Blank. We're so pleased to have both of you with us today. And Peter, I turn it over to you. Thank you, Mary. And Sandy, it really is a pleasure and honor to be with you today. I guess I'll start with a disclaimer and then a question. I'm a Met fan and are the Boston Red Sox gonna be a little better next year? Ah, Peter, come on, we could have started on such a better note. Yeah, it's been a pain, more painful than usual season for the Red Sox, and I am very familiar with the roller coaster emotional ride that we Red Sox fans tend to experience. But I'm, I hope so. You know, I'm, I'm glad to hear that you're a Mets fan and not a Yankees fan. So thank you. You know, we do, in all seriousness, of course, live in a roller coaster time a time of terrific hardship for members of the community, uh, particularly vulnerable groups. And at the highest levels, what, what have you been your life experience, both looking outward and inward over these last couple of years with the throes of COVID and war and economic challenges and many politicians who don't have much respect for the rule of law and precedent? What, where are you at in terms of your thinking? Are you optimistic for a better future? You know, I think that my optimism is one that's cautiously optimistic. I, you know, grew up during the time of the ADA. I started kindergarten in 1990. And so, you know, my perspective of being a part of the ADA generation, term that was coined by Rebecca Coakley, you know, is one where... We are poised to yeah, lead on the civil rights laws and the movement that came before us. And that includes making the changes in our present society and some of the most concerning issues, whether it's climate change, whether it's racial and economic justice. And you know, one of the things that I am optimistic about cautiously is the increasing awareness of the disability rights movement as its own civil rights movement as part of some of those other social justice movements that I just named. And so we are not as much of a silo, I think, as a movement and 
at disabled leaders, as we might have been probably 25, 50 years ago. And so that's the kind of optimism that I'm continuing to carry forward with me that, you know, we are being more integrated into civil rights spaces. I mean, there's definitely more work to be done and greater awareness and also policy efforts that really need to have a disability perspective leading it that doesn't like currently exist. And some of that is really obviously the, the COVID-19 public health federal policies there. But I think that's the hope that I kind of have to cling to a bit to, you know, to keep keep ourselves going. Now you are of a new generation, a much more diverse and inclusive attitudes about disability and breadth of his community. I know you were and very are involved in the intersectional nature of the community, both from the lived experience and what you promoted over the years. For our listeners, how would you describe what we mean by intersectionality and why is it now an important dimension to express of the disability experience? Yeah, so whenever I get questions about intersectionality, I think it's really important to return to its origin, which is, it was, it is a legal theory that was founded and first developed by Kimberly Crenshaw, who is a civil rights thinker and um, legal expertise. And it is a theory that describes the ways we experience power. And some of us have different ways of accessing power uh, than others. So it is to say that some folks have marginalization and experiences of marginalization, such as being somebody who is non-white, maybe somebody who experiences multiple disabilities, somebody who has different immigration status, you know, somebody who might not communicate orally. And all of these experiences, kind of in different settings and different contexts, mean that our access to privilege, positionality, and power uh, lands differently. And it's not to, you know, it is not a competition. It is not about the layering of the different identities so much as, you know, as somebody who has, you know, is currently finishing my master's program in public policy, somebody who also is neurodivergent. I identify as being somebody who has ADHD. I have a hearing loss. I am a wheelchair user. You know, in the classroom setting during this time of COVID, I experienced marginalization in that, you know, I, for my own safety, have to be in a classroom that is remote for my own safety and and health, like, accommodations. But in a different setting, in a setting where, imagine, it is all about disability community members. My privilege of having access to an education of having access to steady income, of a job, employment, housing, that lands me in a different position of privilege and power and access. Because recognizing that most folks with disabilities in our country do not have access to employment and housing in the ways that I do. And so intersectionality is important because it is a framing to really better understand where power exists, where it can be changed, and who is holding the power. And so I think that when folks over the years in particular, I think intersectionality has become this kind of buzzword and kind of has lost some of its original intent, I think, 
But really, I would encourage your listeners um, to seek out and to learn more about Kimberly Crenshaw's work and the legal case that really contributed to this theory. So maybe this is kind of a overly simplistic question, but why is the concept good in the evolution of thinking about disability or race or gender? How does it move the day-to-day dialogue forward in ways that we grow and change? Yeah, so I think that in this present moment, for example, it is August 5th. We just finished marking the 32nd anniversary of the Americans with Disabilities Act. And this is a moment that happens every year, right, for our community, for our movement, that we remember the disability, the independent living movement that was led by people with disabilities, primarily folks with physical disabilities, also primarily folks who are white, who communicated in ways that, you know, were, quote unquote, more easily accessible to folks in power and in government. And so what this meant, I think for me, as somebody who's been growing up in the ADA generation, is that kind of constant reminder of like, okay, so this is what our movement has started from, but our movement today looks completely different. It is about that cross-movement solidarity. It is about saying, you know, the folks who are experiencing institutionalization, that is not just folks in long-term care settings and congregate care settings, but also folks who are imprisoned, are in detention centers, are, you know, are also young people in nursing homes. That kind of broader expansion of our understanding of intersectionality and how it's still very much necessary to the civil rights, disability civil rights movement today, I think is really important for us to just continue moving forward. And so getting back to your question around gender and race, I, you know, For example, when I look around at the disability movement right now, I'm seeing a lot of disabled women, quite frankly, who who are leaders, in particular disabled women of color. I'm thinking of Anita Cameron, Alice Wong, thinking of Vilisa Thompson, Leah Lashmi, and others who, you know, because of the work, because of their visibility, because of the contributions and you know, people are listening to what folks are sharing. Uh, and it is grounded in not just lived experiences, which is important, but also in the rigor of you know, critical disability studies, the rigor of public policy, the notion that personal is political, I think is very much present still right now in our movement. And I look to some of those leaders that I just named as folks who have not just kind of acted on that, but are really modeling how leadership can be a more welcoming place for for all of us. Do you consider the concept of intersectionality as applied within conceptions of disability as well? For example, in the simplest way, physical versus mental or mobility versus sensory. Is that part of the intersectional concept or is it primarily focused on other characteristics, race, gender, age, socioeconomic status, perhaps? No, I absolutely think that intersectionality encompasses disability in the broadest form of that, right? So we know that, for example, poverty is both a contributor to disability and also a consequence of disability. 
it when folks don't have access to healthy food, right? When folks don't have access to a primary care physician, when folks have, you know, are living in poor environments that are contributing to respiratory illnesses and chronic illnesses. These are factors that contribute to disability. And so I think it intersectionality in, in the example that you just gave, it is less so about kind of a one or the other, but existing at the, the crossroads and at the intersections of recognizing that somebody who had multiple disabilities is absolutely, you know, a part of our disability civil rights movement in the ways that somebody who is experiencing might have just identifying as one disability, but also brings to that experience different gender, race, ethnicity, political background, religious belief. And and I think all of this is important to incorporate because it really kind of means the difference between what a policy outcome could be, who gets counted, who doesn't, who gets to be at the table, and who isn't. So for example, one organization that I often think about in this work and within our own movement, who I think is a population that does not get enough advocacy space as the rest of us do, are folks who use AAC, augmented communication devices. So folks who are nonverbal, and the organization that I'm thinking of is Communication First, the only civil rights organization that work to support folks who use AAC, whether it's their access to education, whether there's it's their access to tech, and you know being a part of our now very much online remote world. I mean, this is how you and I are are talking today, and yet we also see that it is folks who don't have access to AAC and um, assistive tech and other devices that, you know, among students who get penalized, who get segregated into other classrooms, who at worst get restrained by police because of, you know, their ways of showing up and communicating are deemed a threat in a public school setting. And so it is that would be an example of how it is beyond just kind of a physical versus mental or invisible disability. So it's very important and interesting. By definition, we're all intersectional beings, but it's the unique combination as associated with oppression or a lack of power in society in which the term really comes alive. Is that is that your thinking? Yes. And so getting back to kind of using this theory and this framework to really identify and hone in on where those positions of power are and who historically has not had access to power helps community organizers like myself and others, and I would hope public policy figures, researchers, educators, to not just identify power, but then to, you know, contribute to change. Once we figure out and can better see the map, so who has, you know, the direct access to power in certain parts of our society, and particularly, for example, in our government system, we can really quickly identify some of the trends, some of the practices that need to be changed to upend those. Well, you you smartly anticipated my question, and that was, how does this apply to advocacy, both in principle, 
and in specifically with regard to your advocacy? Yeah, so a few years ago, back in 2016, I and a bunch of friends who are also disabled activists and community organizers, original group, most of whom are also identified as disabled people of color, we started noticing the rise of a lot of kind of like TED Talks or flat pieces or YouTube pieces from people with disabilities speaking to their lived experiences, but in a way that just did not resonate with us. It was often somebody who came from middle to upper class income, had you know wealth, had privilege, and we could identify this because it would often be somebody who you know was talking about a fancy robotic arm or a wheelchair that can climb upstairs and. All of this equipment that, you know, folks like myself who are on Medicaid, insurance is never going to cover that, right? And and the experiences that were being spoken to that we saw was really about kind of this overcoming narrative or adapting to narrative. And I want to be very clear here and say that it's not that those experiences are not just as important, just as validated, um, just as necessary in the breadth of the diversity of our community, but it's not the only one, right? And, and I would also hypothesize to say that it's likely not the majority. And so as we began to think about this, we were like, well, what is our space and what is our place in the community? Particularly folks who are disabled people of color who, you know, at the time I was living on SSI, working at a mentoring program and really would just kind of figure it out. I did not have a ton of disability role models as a, as a kid. I'm the only person in my family with a disability. And so, you know, we just started asking questions about, you know, is there a conference that exists that is organized by disabled people for disabled people, right? Kind of drawing from that mantra of nothing about us without us. Does that place exist? Does something like that exist? And the more we ask, the more we learn that it really doesn't. And, you know, there are conferences in academia, conferences for like paraprofessionals, um, but really not a community generated place. And so we created what is called the Disability and Intersectionality Summit, DIS, started in 2016. We had a shoestring budget. We barely had enough to rent out a small conference space in the Boston area in the building that had one elevator. And I remember like that Saturday, I, I mean, our team really <laughs> undercounted the number of people who showed up because that elevator <laughs> really got put to use that day. And you know, the, the room began to, like, it was filled. Uh, so much so that the building manager came to up to me at one point and said, you're pushing up against like the maximum, like we don't want to break the fire code. And so, you know, it was a space that not just centered and lifted up disabled people of color who don't have these platforms, but it was also a space that really incorporated disability justice principles. I know that we'll get into a little bit later, but as part of our organizing practices, right? So this meant we paid every presenter. 
we ensured that it would be live streamed over YouTube and Facebook. This meant that we included ASL in CART, whether or not there was somebody in the audience who quote-unquote asked for it. And we really tried to model what we believed our movement was about in our organizing practices. And so the first one was in 2016, and the most recent one happened maybe online in 2020. The most recent one happened in 2022. Well, once again, you anticipated my question, and I wanted to ask you what your conception of disability justice is, and is it a unique concept to disability as opposed to racial justice, gender justice? Is that concept mean something different? Obviously, there are different experiences, but is it used in a way that connotes the unique experience of disability? Yeah, so disability justice is a framework that has 10 principles and it created in around 2005 by Patty Byrne, Leroy Moore, Stacey Milburn, Mia Mingus, and really by disabled women, femmes, trans and non-binary folks. And I would encourage your listeners to also check out Sins Invalid and that is S-I-N-S-I-N-V-A-L-I-D dot org. And this is a group that recognized disability civil rights and laws and policies are not the only way, and maybe not even the most effective way, perhaps, to drive change. Because when we look at who has, like I was speaking to earlier, who has power in those traditional pathways of democracy, who gets heard and counted and is represented most often, are not necessarily the folks who fall between the cracks, who are existing at the margins of our society. And so these 10 principles really highlight why not only is it important for our movement spaces to be led by disabled people of color, but also how we can collectively drive change beyond laws and policy, beyond this notion of equal rights, right? Because equal rights, as we've learned from other movements, including racial justice, including Black Lives Movement, including the LGBTQ movement, does not actually beget equity. And so among some of these 10 principles, the first one is actually intersectionality. Right. So it is recognizing that the disability experiences of folks who are marginalized, the folks who are non-white, who do not come from generational wealth, experience intersectionality of oppression that is intertwined not just racial homophobia, sexism, but also through classism, through ageism, through you know our geographical location. And it is intertwined with Disability oppression, which is ableism, right? This, this kind of idea that there are some body minds that are more privileged and are no more able to produce in a capitalist system than others. And so, like, this idea that intersectionality is part of disability justice, I think, answers your question about how this is a part of the disability experience. It is a place that 
many folks who don't feel represented by our disability rights and more traditional forms of advocacy don't feel necessarily reflected or represented. And so another principle that gets to this point is leadership of those most impacted, which is to say that folks who are closest to experiences of injustice are likely the folks who have the solution. When we think about just even the history of the disability movement, our leaders in the 50s and 60s, folks who are breaking out of state institutions, I'm thinking about ADAPT in the 70s, tying themselves to Greyhound buses in Colorado. Right? Nobody asked for permission. And yet, they were the folks who are closest to injustice, who experience discrimination, who experience the inability to access things like public transit, and led on it, and just did it. And so I think this principle of leadership of those most impacted is really important because there is a sense of when power is held by groups of people, understandably so, they are reluctant to, you know, share that power, to release that power, to to then pass it on. But if we are to truly be a movement centered in collective liberation, collective care, to get ourselves on the other side of ableism, we need to be listening to the folks who are experiencing not just injustice, but are already doing the work. And so, I mean, other uh, principles of the disability justice movement that I've already kind of spoken to are cross-movement solidarity, like just this kind of fundamental idea that we as a disabled civil rights movement can say, you know, our people are yours and your people are ours. But this kind of idea that you know, folks who are in the LGBTQ movement, who are experiencing conversion therapy. Those are also people who are being disabled through the trauma, through the mental health, through emotional disabilities. And, you know, we should be more present in other movements and other movements should also be more present in ours. Disability justice, what it really is saying is ableism, is something that I experienced by everybody, and you don't need to be a person with a disability to experience it. You don't need to necessarily, you know, quote unquote, call yourself an ally. But the experience of disability is going to ultimately be held by everybody. And we, we know this for a fact. So ableism in that sense, like the ways that we have already seen it in the past few years, be a part of our just kind of embedded so deeply in our healthcare system, in our long-term care system, for example, has caused massive deaths, has caused incredible amounts of consequences for not just our community, but for, you know, the long term of of our broader society as well. And so I, I really do draw from this disability justice framing because it does feel like home to me in, in a political and community organizer sense, more so than the disability rights kind of advocacy through the the political channels. And, and I think part of that, just speaking for myself, is because I come from a family where my parents are immigrants and refugees. My mom is from Northern Vietnam. My dad is from Hong Kong. They came to the country and did not know the language. I am their only child with a disability, which meant that 
I observed them as a child trying to navigate so much newness, but had to community organize, right? That meant my mom had to do the research with other parents of color that she trusted before she showed up at an IEP meeting for me. That meant that my dad had to do the research around like, okay, what are the accessible community swim and camps and recreation classes that I could do? That meant that, you know, folks at school needed to be a little bit more aware, I think, of, you know, when they talked to my parents about independent living goals, somebody from an Asian American family, independent for them means like you're taking me out of my home and away from my parents and away from my family when when that's just not how our family and our culture really you know operates and, and like shows up for each other and so kind of seeing the ways that disability justice as the principles have been described it kind of really reflects kind of my own community organizing background history and advocacy experiences what are your aspirations for the immediate future for yourself in terms of things you want to develop or experience or further grow? Do you have any more immediate plans related to advocacy or education or policymaking? Yeah, well, I mean, personally, I'm really looking forward to finishing my master's in public policy the end of next spring. And I don't say that lightly knowing how many barriers, both financially, both through access and accommodation, um, higher ed is for many disabled folks. But in terms of aspiration for our movement and for more broadly, I am really hoping that the generation that came of age during the ADA, the ADA generation, many of whom, like myself, are now holding positions of leadership and power in, like, across many sectors of our society, can come together to figure out some of the, yeah, most urgent things that our movement hasn't figured out yet. I mean, and I'm thinking about long-term care. I'm thinking about what are the alternatives to nursing homes? I'm also thinking about climate change and the ways that, you know, repeatedly, whenever a hurricane or a cold disaster happens, we always hear about how it's folks who are older and people with disabilities who get left behind. And I'm thinking about also just the constant stigma of disability that somehow is still carried through, that it is so deeply rooted into not just our country, because I don't think it's unique to the U.S., but just this idea that people with disabilities are somehow needing to be cured still, uh, for lack of a better word, you know, like that we are still somehow so uncomfortable with the idea of disability when it is in fact just another natural part of human diversity of the human experience. I think that is going to be a constant part of our movement's legacy to continue to push on because although it's great and it's incredible that we are seeing movies and Netflix and all these you know, like social media and media representation of people with disabilities. And yet, I think when something like COVID-19 happens, people don't actually care. People don't respond to it in the same kind of excitement or urgency that the moment was really calling for. 
it's just kind of like an acceptable consequence for the rest of our society and for too many of our public policy leaders. Well, Sandy, it's really been a pleasure and an honor to speak with you. I guess I'll end where I began, and that is better year next year for the Boston Red Sox. And I guess you're still, do you go to the games at all? Do you still, of course, cheer on the Red Sox? Yes, of course, of course. I mean, baseball and Fenway are always going to be um, a part of some of my favorite things. Fenway is like one of my favorite places in the Boston area. But yeah, hopefully next year we can really get it together. <laughs> well, you you definitely have it together and so will the Red Sox, I'm sure. And once again, I know I speak on behalf of our listeners. This has been a fantastic and interesting interview and very important to understand the movement going forward. So thank you very much. Thank you, Peter. Listeners, you can access this and other 504 at 50 interviews at its website, section 504at50.org. The 504 at 50 series is produced by the Southeast ADA Center, the Burton Blatt Institute at Syracuse University, and in collaboration with the Disability Inclusive Employment Policy Rehabilitation Research and Training Center.